we've um, we've got this down to a. Uh, it's a tight show now. I oh think, yeah, I think, absolutely. I think I think we're ready to start touring. Do you think we could drum up an audience? We maybe we get some arts council funding. Oh, I'm not putting in any more bids this week. Thank you very much. <laughs> Have you put in a bid? I put in a bid today too. Did you? Yeah. No, I put a bid in tail end of last week. So. It's like a it's like a sort of re- a weekly occurrence for you these days, isn't it? <laughs> no, it just takes such a long time. Um, You're like I, the bid man. Uh, yeah, I think you could be played by... I think Michael Douglas should play you. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the lawnmower man? No, what am I thinking of that? What's that one where he... Falling down? Was that... Was falling that? down. That's right, yeah. It's called the lawnmower man. The lawnmower <laughs> man. It's like a weird 19, early 1990s VR sort of mashup is it based on the stephen king yeah mm. i think it starred oh it starred a guy what was oh um it had pierce brothers in it okay 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 right i think it was just before he started <gasps> jeff fahey who jeff fahey fahey f-a something f-a-h-e-y jeff I, fahey i wish it would matter <sighs> how it was spelled or how it was pronounced because i got yeah. nothing that, that's not, no there are no bells ringing here only the sound of the intro to midlifing this is a podcast in which two friends talk about the pleasures absurdities and imperfections of being human I'm Simon Ellis. And I'm Lee Miller. Welcome to Midlifing. I'm trying to make things easy for you for your edit. So what's happened since the oh in the in the in the hours since last I spoke to you? I um I I might have fallen asleep on the couch waiting up for this uh, recording to begin. Of course, because you're an hour in the future. I am. The future is um it's so uh, bright you gotta wear shades. Well, they speak a different language. Whoa. Okay, I don't want to go to the future. Yeah, I know. I know. Who would have thought? I would have thought that the future would definitely be um, Anglo-Saxon, but it, it, it turns not. It turns out not to be the case. But yesterday, I spent quite a lot of time in a quite intriguing back and forth uh, uh, with Eurostar, trying to squeeze compensation out of them. Okay, how's that gone? Well, it was not going very well at all. And then um, I uh, asked if I could speak to someone a little more senior. This is via email. Mm-hmm. And they reviewed my case and said, sorry. And, you know, if I were being really honest, uh, my case my case was thin. Right. And uh, But it turns out the first person had made a mistake. They said you can exchange. <laughs> it was quite funny. You can have a full exchange for the unused ticket, but you need to use it. You need to do this exchange by the 8th of May. And I went to exchange the ticket. This was an outbound ticket, right? So mm-hmm. leaving. And I went to exchange it and uh, said, no, you can't have an outbound date after your inbound date because, of course, my inbound date hasn't been used yet. And, you know, I, I, get, oh, the, I, I get the logic. <laughs> yeah. How can you be there when you haven't gone yet? I mean, how can you leave when you haven't come back yet? Anyway, and, um, and so I said, uh, you know, it would be great. I, I, I appreciate the logic, but... Uh, I've been offered this, and I'd just like you to override the system or, you know, just as a... And she said, nah, cannot do that. And then I um, I went 
I I said, uh, well, basically we have a we now have a legal contract. I've been your um, companion said we, you can f- fully exchange this by the state, and um, so I played that hand, and mm. then followed it up with an email which said, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Followed it up with an email which said, look, just to be clear, I don't want to get, I don't want this to somehow come blow back on your colleague who's just made a genuine mistake and I appreciate that I'm basically trying to capitalise on her mistake. If that's the case, I'd rather just drop this and not worry about it at all. And this was after a lot of emails and pretty Mm. much immediately got an email back saying, thank you for this, it's very kind, Uh, I can offer you blah, 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 blah. And I wonder if you think it was because of the me going there's a legal contract or me being really nice not that I was not pleasant up until then um but do you think and do you think it was which of those two options do you think it was that meant that I somehow flicked the magic switch of having um, getting some kind of uh cash back you know me right yeah you've met me yeah legal not even close really do you think it was about being nice Absolutely. The legal wouldn't even remotely bother them. It would be a nuisance claim and it would be a very particular kind of person who would have the wherewithal to pursue it. Sure. I know those people exist, but I think it was because you were, I think it was because you showed kindness. Mm. I think it was too. And I like to imagine that. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was, the entire thing was entirely convivial. They were all, they were both very professional. And um, I kept saying, I really appreciate your work in this. Uh, It's, uh, I appreciate it. uh, In fact, I said today, I hope your day is a good one and that you find people who are far less, who are far less intransigent than I am. (laughs) (laughs) So now I've got to, uh, now I've got to try and pry some money out of Trinitalia. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's my next. That'll be harder, uh, I'm guessing, because that will be in Italian. Well, I can think I'll just go in English and see how it goes initially, and then. Um, oh, play the foreign card. Good <laughs> plan. <laughs> but yeah, things are all right. Things are all right. I'm settling in. Tomorrow things start getting normal. Oh, that's nice. I mm. like normal. Yeah. Yeah, I. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about normal. We're, we're actually, I know you've always, I've always thought of you as being um, excited about normal. Mm-hmm. That's me. Next to normal. I do have something to... Uh, oh, well, I have a little bit of... Just do it. Just actually, do it. Yeah, okay. One of the things that happened, which I want to ask you about, it's a little bit, I don't quite know how to begin the conversation because it's a little bit, hmm. Do you remember I examined a PhD student of yours? And yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we won't speak of it, but yes, I do remember. Well, we have to speak of it enough in order to be able to have this conversation. Okay. Well, can we speak of it enough? Because it, I think we can speak uh, in the broadest and general, most general terms. Okay, because I don't know how it came up in the demand. conversation with some friends, but it came up. Oh, I, sli- oh, I, I slipped it into the conversation. <laughs> Somehow, and they both said they were they were both um I reckon shocked, yeah, the world of performing performance art is quite shocking, I think to people who are not in it, yes, 
And and you don't have to be very far away from it to still be shocked by it. I think dancers can be shocked by it. I think theatre makers can be shocked by it. Yes, I think that's uh, I think that's true. And they said, and so we, you're going to have to help because they said they thought that this work would never be made, would never be allowed to be made now, post Me Too, and the kinds of questions about consent and things like that. Hmm. Well, it was it was interesting. The work was made by um, uh, an adult, and by this I mean somebody who was probably into his late thirties by this point. Male, cisgendered, heterosexual, occupying a position of power in his academic role. So he, he I think he was a, a program leader at the point at which he was working on his uh, his PhD, and his PhD was asking questions about toxic masculinity. So I think that while the headline of his practice, which actually isn't fair because it's not really the headline of his practice, and I realise well, we have it's what said the headline would it's what the headline would yes, it's what be. the headline would be, which is effectively um, I, I'm going to I'm going to frame it in the in the uh, the 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 most opaque of narratives which is to say that it required a level of intimacy between the performer and the audience that is not normal in daily practice, um, but most significantly, the intimacy was one-sided and it was couched through a series of, are you okay with this? And if you're not okay with this, don't worry, because this is another strategy. So there was always the right to refuse. So Yes, when you say it's not normal, I mean... It's pretty extreme. It's pretty yeah. out there. It's pretty out there to it's, be it's, asked, or not to be asked, yes. but to, to be invited to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are dancing around here, but um, I think it's okay to say that as part of a performance, the, uh, as the audience member, so this is one-on-one, right? Mm-hmm. I was invited to and then guided through giving the performer an enema. Yeah, there we go. That's that. I think that's a, a fair and accurate representation of an element of the performance, um, which, as we say, would be the headline if we were writing for the Daily Mail or perhaps the BBC, according to reports <laughs> in the Guardian. <laughs> so no, your I'm, friends were shocked. Yes, and they and I kept on saying, uh, well, because one of the things that struck me about the whole, and so their, their sort of sense was that because the climate has changed so much that it would be less likely to even happen. And so I said it had gone through ethical processes and also made the point, which I think is an important point to make uh, and to keep making it, that is my experience of it and the thing that I remember most strongly about it um, was of the sense of care of mm-hmm. of bilateral care, meaning care, uh, his care for me, and you might say my care for him, uh, mm-hmm. and so it was a, a above all those things and all the uh, you might say the perception of ickiness, which I never really felt that, but um, was uh, was an extraordinary uh, uh, sense of vulnerability and care in it. But yes, their, yeah. their, their sense was no way this would work would get made these days. And I wondered what you thought about that. 
Oh, I think that's such an interesting question because, I mean, um, it's it, it's in a, a long lineage of work, you know, that we can trace back to, I mean, probably most clearly would be the work of Carolee Schneeman, whose 1974 piece, Interior Scrolls, saw her take the words of an art critic, write them on a long piece of paper, <laughs> insert them into her vaginal canal, and then slowly unfurl that <laughs> scroll from inside herself and read those words <laughs> out loud as she effectively reclaimed the patriarchal voice which had overwritten her intention as an art maker. I realise I've just dropped into lecture mode. You sure, As I say all of that out loud, you sure wow. did, didn't you? You're right. Yo, man. And, and I think you're on yeah, home. You're on, you are on home territory I'm on, here. I'm on home. Yeah, I am. We could and and actually, if we were to sort of do some some performance historiography, we could probably go back further, and we could maybe go back to well, the Vienna actionists. We could probably go back to. I mean, certainly, there's elements of Dada that we could go back to. So, Flaxus, so you, you know, we surely. Could, well, yeah, Fluxus, Fluxus is post Dada, so Dada is like twenties. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. You know, so so you you know, um, I, I'm thinking, I'm sort of trying to see how far back we can go, but we could we could definitely go back a hundred years, in terms of radical practices that place the body of the artist in the centre of the art making process, and also the art making product, so that the 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 work is the artist, the work is the body of the artist, mm. and the interface between the audience and the art maker. So, in the late sixties, you're absolutely right to to name check Fluxus. There, in the late sixties, the the idea of score based practice started to emerge out of some of the things that were happening over in the states. In, Black Mountain College, but also some stuff that was happening in mainland Europe. So you, you've got these sort of um, parallel um, parallel narratives of art making that sort of coalesce as through Fluxus, and they inform how things are done, and that all that also sort of bumps up against the emergence of feminism, particularly the particularly the the second wave feminism. And the idea of the body being a locus of pleasure for women, and also um, a sort of reclamation of the body, a reclamation, as well. yeah. That, and I think that's what I mean about being a locus of pleasure, because that idea that up until then the body, the female body, was a locus of pleasure for men, not for women. Mm. So that sense of, as you say, reclamation. So that gave birth to a a, 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 a radical, uh, a radical type of, of performance practice, and you know you can name check them. I, I mentioned one. Uh, we can talk about Marina Abramovich, we can talk about Valley Export, we can talk about uh, Carolee Schneeman, I've already mentioned her, haven't I? We could talk about Annie Sprinkle. Annie Sprinkle uh, was the one that I was trying to get, was, I was yeah. on the tip of my tongue. There's a, there's a really interesting Canadian um, performance artist who, up until, certainly up until five, five or six years ago, was still working. I, I, I'm not really in this field anymore, so I don't encounter the work as, as, as regularly. Uh, a woman called Jess Dobkin. Jess Dobkin was famous and like kind of semi-notorious um, famous for creating something called the Lactation Station, where <laughs> she um, she got she got lactating mothers to donate their milk, and then she ran a, a milk bar for paying customers. <laughs> but, but wait, my wait, wait. Partic- yes. Yeah. Uh, well, so yeah, I, so you're saying that because there's a long history there, that that somehow so you got. No, no, no I'm, I'm, I promise I'm going to get to a point. I just want to, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm not 
defending the work. I'm trying to put the work in a not Daily Mail context. I'm trying to kind of put the work in a little bit of a performance art history context for those of our listeners who are not familiar with this. And and I'm sort of thinking, Jess Dobkin, who did Lactation Station, also does this wonderful cabaret piece where <laughs> there's a guy dressed... At, well, it's not a guy, it's a woman dressed as... Uh, in, in male drag, dressed as Jim Henson um, of the Muppets. <laughs> and and, uh, and Jess Dobkin is painted head to foot green. Green, And she's yeah. totally naked. And then... Um, the the performer playing Jim Henson gently and it has to be gently wow. inserts her entire hand into Jess Dobkin's vaginal canal and then wow. she lip syncs uh, "It's Not Easy Being Green" <laughs> by Kermit the Frog. <laughs> so the, these these are practices that are, are well established. Is what I'm trying to. I'm just. I'm also just. I'm just glad that the uh, the we've got the show title sorted out, which is it's not easy being green. (laughs) Um. So, your friend's observation about me too, I think, makes me go. It worries, it doesn't worry me. It, not, none of this worries me. I'm not sure I fully agree because I think that a lot of this work that we are talking about is in dialogue with questions that are still being explored through things like the Me Too movement. It's those questions of rape culture. It's those questions of the ownership of female bodies. The fact that you are talking about a piece of performance work made by um, a male performer is um, interesting, but it's still actually in dialogue with those same narratives. So I think that conceptually there's no reason that that couldn't happen, but there's here's, here comes my butt. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I just sorry. I had an image of this this rather hairy this. <laughs> You haven't seen my bot. Well, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> it was just a guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there have been mo- <laughs> there have been moments where Bob has crept up behind me and said, "Are you wearing underpants?" Oh, no, it's just your furry bottom. Um, okay. So anyway, here comes your butt. My butt is that in in the, uh, my although is here in the UK. You can call it what you past- like. <laughs> Sorry. For like. the past fifteen years, there has been um, a, a kind of a. a uh, I got a vested interest. I'm going to say this. There's been an, an attack on the teaching of performance in schools, um, and the result is that anything that is drama lives only in English. So there is. Um, there is Shakespeare in, and nothing in, else, yeah. basically. Well, I mean, it's not quite that bleak, but it's bleak adjacent. Yeah, Tom Stoppard which and means, Shakespeare. Yeah, which means that when students come to university to study theatre, they are not already steeped in um, a rich tradition of work. They're kind of almost still finding their feet. So I think... The reason that work like that would struggle to get made, certainly out of a British university system, is less to do with Me Too and more to do with the fact that there has been a a general pull towards conservatism in performance 
over the past 15 years. And you mean that's professional performance? You're talking about theatre. I'm talking about... I'm, I'm, I'm talking about all sorts of things. Um, but, but yeah, theatre, I think, has become... I just don't see as much of the the experimental stuff yeah. that I used to do. Yeah. And, and, so and, that, and you're saying that that's... There's lots of reasons for that. But one of those reasons is... Um, one. Ideological. Is ideological from, on the part of, in the way in which government steers funding. That is, they yes. say, this is the kind of work and they have to have these kinds of things going on. That there is that there are the Arts Council, the people who fund... They'll be under pressure from the government to support particular kinds of work with particular policies based on blah, blah, blah. I, I, you know, I'm not sure it's that. I'm not sure it's that thought through. Um, I think it's more to do with <laughs> it's the like fact a that. Feeling. Uh, no, I, I meant the policy isn't that thought through. I think it's much more that STEM is the focus of. You know, education has to be about its um, its extrinsic value, not its intrinsic. Its utility, value. yeah. Exactly, yeah. So we have a utilitarian approach to, uh, to education. Um, primary, secondary and tertiary education is, is driven by its utility. It's driven by its ability to get people into jobs. It's not driven by a question of how do we know. It doesn't, it's, it's not concerned about the bigger questions of knowledge production. Um, so intrinsic value, I think, has been lost to a certain degree. And a byproduct of that is... Certainly in my field, in the field of performance, work has become more, um, when, I'm, when, you know, when I was teaching um, undergraduates, work has become more conservative because they are coming from a place where they have been introduced to fewer examples of practice over the course so of their primary, secondary education. So it's kind of like I'm starting from a lower, yeah. A, yeah. A lower base. Yeah. And but can you, which I think is... I th- I can follow that. Uh, and do you think that the, you know, my friends who were saying, really, is that is that even, that they were expressing doubt about the, let's say, the viability of that, of a work like this now, that can you, putting aside what you've just said about the sort of increasingly conservative nature of, of theatre or performance from, a, from, from the get-go, that could you can you buy that people these people are um, you know pretty liberal uh, they they go to theatre um, they're curious about the world is it difficult for you to imagine and I don't mean this I'm just don't mean this as a challenge I mean it really is a genuine question is it difficult for you to imagine the kind of the the, the contrast or the or, or the um, dissonance between their perspective on the world and this thing which I dropped in on a lunchtime conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't find it difficult in the slightest, and I fully understand. I fully understand. Um, I think we have... When I, when I was going to see work like that a lot. 20, 30 years ago... Hmm. Um, I was probably paying two or three quid to go and see stuff. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to sort of shady underground venues, um, and I was, yeah, I, I was, I was, you know, hanging around places in Manchester and and Liverpool and seeing work that was not necessarily in, certainly not in in what you would think of as theatre space, or the mainstream. It, yeah, 
exactly so they'd be in you know they'd, they'd be in in mixed art venues or in, in some instances they'd be in venues that had a bar and was making most of its money through the bar and then it just had like a room off the back and you saw stuff in the room off the back would that have been the 90s would that have been the early 90s would it no later uh, that would have been in the that was that was the late 90s i think mm. I, I was that i was there but um so so i don't I don't find it hard to to square the circle of of that surprise because it's harder and harder and harder to find those kinds of practices because it's harder and harder and harder to be given the um license autonomy license yeah autonomy yeah, yeah. yeah to to make that kind of practice because we you know it's so caught up with with property prices yeah, and things like and the institutionalization of of uh, yeah. of the art market you might say even yeah. you know it's it certainly at uh, performance art but also in dance as yeah. well there's the sort of sense that yeah. the way in which venues are under enormous pressure to uh, yeah. to to bring in a certain number of people so there the yeah. possibilities of them yeah. experimenting etc so so what exactly. your your argument here is that there's um this Sort of dilution of experimentalism that something that something has changed radically in the last twenty plus years that means that what what is what is experimental now is by no what would, would would not necessarily be considered experimental twenty thirty years ago is is that the sort of the upshot of that i th- i think it's i think it's that the experimentation still exists but the experimentation has been pushed further and further and further to the fringes so if i want to go there's a there's a queer um there's a queer club night in lisbon that i'm interested in going to but I'm also, because of the kind of practices that are being generated out of that, um, and because I say it's a club night and it makes it sound like you go and dance, there's all sorts of practitioners making work there. But I'm also aware that I'm a 49-year-old, white-bearded, straight guy. It's a difficult it's a difficult world for me to step into without making it uncomfortable for the people who should ha- genuinely feel safe and like that this is their space. So I think that... I think things have just been pushed to maybe pushed is the wrong word because I think it was always marginalia I think that the margins are occupied by I don't know I don't know I was going to say occupied by different people but I I don't know if that's the case or if it's just I've gotten older so I don't encounter it as much but it it feels like it it feels like the shape um, of the margins has changed yeah I don't I don't I don't bump up against the margins in quite the way that I used to So maybe when I say that <sighs> things are not as experimental as they were, maybe they were never that experimental, <laughs> or, or it wasn't as you know it wasn't as as shot through culture as as it, it as I thought it was. Because what I'm actually reflecting on is that I was just hanging around with experimental makers. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I, I'm talking about. It my was the air you were breathing. Yeah, and so maybe maybe those kinds of practices were were hugely radical and right on the edge then and remain so but i'm just a lot closer to the center now so i can't see them it's very curious it's uh i mean we're sort of rounding towards the end of this but this conversation but i mean one of the things that's weird about dance 
uh, is that it's it's so predicated on young bodies. Like it's it 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 makes its hay on via young bodies. So there's a very clear, um, mostly gentle pushing to the side uh, as your body ceases to be young. Um, and that's, there's something, of course, incredibly sad about that. But I was thinking of more of, uh, and, and so it's a little bit similar, but perhaps not as bad as if you were a, a pop star or a rock star, where it's all about what you have to say when you're between the ages of, well, more or less 20 to, or maybe 18 to 28. And what it must be like to be a 54-year-old former rock star still trying to do the things and say the things and make the kinds of sounds and fill the same kinds of stadiums. That must be... I just It's very hard to be, for me to fathom what that transition must be like for people whose identities and livelihoods are predicated on being young. 